is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Trevor Bauer could play baseball again, but not this season and probably not next either. Major League Baseball just suspended him for two full seasons for violating the league's domestic violence and sexual assault policy. Bauer says he will appeal. We'll go in-depth later in the show into how could he be suspended, even though no criminal charges were ever filed in the sexual assault case. Inflation keeps getting worse. News of the economy shrinking to start the year as Wall Street and a lot of people very nervous. The Federal Reserve meeting next week and could hike interest rates even more, which creates even more concerns about the direction of the economy. We'll try to figure out what's next. The government's now trying to learn why some people who take Pfizer's COVID medication are getting sick shortly after taking the medication. We'll go in-depth, try and figure that one out. Central Kiev hit with explosions just after a visit by a top U.N. official. This comes as we get word of an American killed in combat fighting against the Russians. And 30 years ago today, L.A. shaken to its core. The 1992 riots started following the acquittals of four LAPD officers in the Rodney King beating trial. We'll look back at the day, explore how the city, police, race relations have changed. We'll talk with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, LAPD Chief Michael Moore, and the doctor who treated Reginald Denny shortly after he was attacked at Florence and Normandy. We start with the economy. Alexandra Tomich is a associate dean and economist at Boston College. Thanks for, for joining us. So uh, I'm looking at my phone even as we uh, speak, and I'm seeing things like Amazon shares falling 14 percent, worst day since 2006, says uh, CNBC. Uh, Dow tumbles 900 points. NASDAQ down 4 percent. What's going on? So, first of all, thanks for having me on, uh, on your broadcast. Well, uh, the way I would summarize what's going on is this is probably a part of returning to the pre-COVID normal. Uh, because with, uh, with Amazon, the big news was obviously their drop in earnings, actually the first loss since 2015. And, you know, a part of it is in all the news stories, you see uh, this result of the first quarter is being compared to last year when people were still a little queasy about going and shopping in person. So some of it uh, is uh, part of kind of returning back to the normal, to maybe not doing as much online shopping, to companies not keeping as many inventories, which was a part of the drop in the GDP and such. And markets are getting spooked. Uh, and there is, you know, there is the reaction. They, there are many things going on all at the same time. The Russia-Ukraine war, the inflation, the Fed hikes, and they are trying to make heads or tails of it. And that's why markets are volatile. My guess is we'll probably see the rally <laughs> within a week or two. The report yesterday with the, uh, you know, actual shrinking of the, the economy, the GDP numbers, was that a surprise to people or, or was that expected? I don't know that the timing was expected, but if you look a little closer, there are basically two drivers of the decline. One driver is the rise in imports, which is really interesting. Uh, so we have really negative trade uh, uh, balance. If you know, we have a trade deficit again, and that that is new, and it's probably due to some pressures outside of the United States. So they are not buying as many U.S. goods. And the other part of the decline is the uh, change in inventories. And the change in inventories are largely coming because people are probably feeling a little bit better about the supply chain. So they are not holding as much inventory as they did last all throughout last year. Because 
uh, during the holiday season, for example, there was a big fear, will they be able to have the goods? So people started stockpiling. So those two are the reasons for the decline. If you look at the consumer spending, that's healthy and it's up uh, and, and such. So, you know, if it wasn't for these two, it, it, the, the GDP would have grown slightly. Okay, so, so, so we mentioned, they, but let me, yeah. let me I want to go on to something that's happening, which, which we mentioned at the very top uh, of the show when we introduced you, that, you know, the Federal Reserve next week, as you know, uh, is going to, or at least it's expected widely, to increase uh, interest rates again, probably more to come. What does it mean to people who are listening to this show? Does it mean it's going to cost them more to buy a car? Does it mean it's going to cost them more in terms of a mortgage if they are able to buy a house? Is that what it yeah. comes down to? Yes. And that's the short answer. So, yes, the rates uh, in the economy are based uh, on on the treasury rates and Fed uh, manipulates those rates. That's part of what they do. And Fed is basically trying to get ahead of the inflation. I think with these negative numbers coming out of GDP, as technical as that explanation is, I think it will probably cause Fed to pause a little bit. Uh, predictions right now are that there will be four increases in, in rates throughout the year. I don't think they will reverse course this quickly. But I'm sure that they are taking notice because they are trying to control inflation without steering the economy into recession. And that's really tough. Alexander Tomic, uh, Associate Dean, Economist at Boston College. Thank you. Government researchers interested in studying why some people who have taken Pfizer's antiviral COVID medication seem to be getting sick again shortly after they finish. Paxlovid has become a key element of the Biden administration's pandemic approach. Back with us now is a friend of the show, Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases over at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Good to be with you guys. So since the last time we spoke with you, uh, and we've talked about it on the show, so I ended up getting COVID. I took Paxlovid. Am I going to get sick again? <laughs> I don't think so. There are a few people who apparently taking the drug, then once they get off it, have a short-term rebound. That is, they start putting out viruses again for a short period of time and may even have some symptoms. We need to see how frequently that occurs and whether those viruses are still capable of being transmitted to others. So far, is it kind of like an anecdotal sort of thing? It, we're gathering a series of anecdotes to try to determine exactly how frequently it is. And is this something that, at least in some patients, might require somewhat longer treatment than currently recommended, which is five days? So is that the thinking that it's possible that for some people, for whatever reason, they just need a longer course of the med? That would appear to be the thinking or that the uh, antiviral kind of sits on the virus, uh, doesn't let it multiply. But when you then take the drug away, the virus kind of wakes up and says, oh, I can go back to work <laughs> again. One of the things that appears to be not the case is that these viruses are resistant to Paxlovid. So that's very good. Yeah, because that's the one that we don't want, whereas the pill would not work anymore because it's mutated in some way. Exactly. And that appears not to be the case. It just is that some people seem to have a longer time clearing the virus completely from their systems. Perhaps their own immune system is a little slower to get rid of the virus 
than others. Why do you think it is that, that a lot of physicians are being startled by this? Because as I understand it, uh, the fact that some people are taking this uh, med uh, had a, a relapse is sort of buried, uh, and I put that word in quotes, but sort of buried in the Pfizer material, but it seems to have been so buried that nobody knew about it. Well, it's definitely in the fine print, and frankly, I was surprised along with others. It just hadn't been promoted along with the use of the drug that this might be something that could occur. And sure enough, as we start giving it to hundreds of thousands of people, doctors here and there will say, whoa, hey, what's happening here? So how do we operate in this kind of a world with Omicron, with Paxlovid, uh, in terms of people getting it and feeling okay and thinking, well, I can I can run to the store, I'll, I'll wear my N95. How long should you really isolate, isolate? And then what do you do when you want to leave your house and you're feeling okay? I think we have to go with the vast majority, namely that the Paxlovid is going to prevent your developing more serious illness that requires hospitalization. That's its job. And if you feel well after five days, I think you can go out and about until we learn differently. What do you tell uh, patients who uh, I, I know, like, again, in my case, when I went to pick up the, the med, I was handed like 10 pages from the pharmacy explaining over and over again, this is an experimental drug. We don't know everything it might cause. It didn't bother me, but I could see a lot of people going, I don't know if I want to take this. What do you tell them? Well, as with all new medications, we learn things as we go along, but this medicine was studied very, very carefully, and it's now ready for use. We know that it works very well, not 100%, but very well, particularly if you can start early after you're diagnosed with COVID in preventing your moving on to hospitalization, and that's the job of the drug. What about the interactions with, with various drugs and, and some people thinking, well, I can never take this thing. Is that a, a, a you and your doctor discussion to say, well, can I come off my other medication? Is there time in this five-day window that, that, the, that if I got off one and got on this and got back on, that would be okay? And that's an individual decision with each doctor and patient. There are patients who have underlying kidney disease or underlying liver disease where in particular that, drug, that conversation needs to take place. And if you're taking other medications, also have that conversation because there can be drug-drug interactions. I stopped eating gummy bears while I was on it. So. <laughs> went, went to health probably food a good for, thing. for yeah. five days. That's how long it lasted. Yeah. You're, well, your dentist was pleased. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Dr. William Schaffner, professor of preventative medicine, infectious diseases at Vanderbilt. Coming up, we look back at the 1992 riots 30 years later. We'll hear from Congresswoman Maxine Waters. She was quite vocal at the time following the acquittals in the Rodney King beating trial. We'll also hear from LAPD Chief Michael Moore on how the department and policing in L.A. has changed in the decades since the violence. Right now, Russia on the attack again in Ukraine. Two big explosions rocked central Kiev just after the U.N. Secretary General met with Ukraine's president. A one person killed a Radio Free Europe journalist. Comes as we get news of the death of an American killed fighting alongside Ukrainians. Journalist Phil Itner with us live from Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thanks for being with us again. Let's start with uh, what happened in Kiev. They had to know that the, the secretary general was there, right? He had just been to Russia, and then this was his next stop. Yeah, uh, actually, I'm, I'm sure they did. Uh, the, the, the 
the analysis of it is is basically saying that uh, this was kind of a big middle finger to the UN from the Russians. Uh, I have to uh, uh, just take a quick moment here, gentlemen. Um, we actually have an air raid siren in Lviv at the moment. Oh. Uh, so I need to put some um, some gear on. If you'll bear with me, I can continue speaking with you. But well, I just want you to hear I, this. I, I mean, just take a quick moment. Phil, so that you, is currently happening in Lviv. Phil, if you need to go somewhere for safety, no, no, by all no, no. Means, go I, ahead. I have, I have, I have a section of the apartment where I am located that is secure, and uh, I uh, just will put on my helmet here, just in case. But we can continue to discuss. Uh, unfortunately, sadly, in Kiev, uh, what happened when that airstrike came in while the UN Secretary General was around, uh, it hit an apartment building. And, uh, uh, yeah, a, a RFE, a Radio Free Europe, uh, 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 a young woman by the name of, uh, I want to get this name right, uh, Vera uh, Virich, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Vera Hyrich, uh is her name. Um, she was uh, previously employed in Ukrainian television. She went over to Radio Free Europe and sadly was killed in that attack. How often now, uh, as you just demonstrated, the, the uh, air raid sirens going off where you are in Lviv, uh, how often is that happening now? Because there was a time, as you'll recall, when we were talking on the show, when that was almost non-existent. Sure. Yeah, we went through a very long period of time when we didn't get anything at all. I would say in the aftermath of the downing of the, of the Moscow uh, flagship, at the, the flagship for the Black Sea Fleet, uh, we've we've seen an increase, a uh, significant increase, and Russia's been pretty open about the intention there. They say that they are trying to stop um, the shipment of weaponry that does come through this part of the country. But the Ukrainians say that they've moved their um, their uh, their shipping lanes, uh, the way they're bringing in the weaponry, to move it away from civilian in. Uh, uh, areas for just that reason, uh, in addition to the fact that they want to keep those routes and those, those, uh, those lines of, uh, of shipping in uh, materiel coming from the West. They want to keep them secret, so they want to keep them away from places where people could see it. Uh, nevertheless, anytime Russia shoots anything in this direction, uh, we get these air raid sirens. So they have not hit Lviv proper, touch wood. Um, that often. It's, it has happened. Notably, about a week ago, we had those strikes outside the train station um, that uh, drew condemnation from the Ukrainians because, again, there are no military supplies coming through the town, the city of Lviv. While they come through the area, they don't come through the city. Um, those That train station is, is basically uh, just civilians. And it sounds to me like the air raid siren is ended. Yes, it, I think it has. Yes. So I'm going to take off my helmet here and we can continue our conversation. In terms of what we know from from what is now the front you know, on the eastern side, the Russians not making the gains that they have been wanting to make. I mean, the Ukrainians are still holding that line for the most part. Well, that's right. I mean, it, it looks like uh, um, what they tried to do is there's a bit of a bulge, an area where um, if they wanted to, they could kind of pinch off 
uh, a, a bulge in eastern uh, Ukraine, and it is hinged on a city called uh, uh, Izium. And uh, they have been trying to push through to get that, uh, and they have not been making uh, an awful lot of success there. Um, some advances in various areas, of course, they, they, this is their new offensive, that they're, they're taking a very different tactic uh, than they did in the original uh, attack uh, in Ukraine. But uh, they still, it seems, are you know, meeting with strong resistance and aren't making the kind of uh, successful advance that many thought that uh, the, you know, the, the oftentimes uh, well-regarded Russian military uh, would have been expected to make. So um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's yet again an instance of, of whether or not it's the Russians failing or the Ukrainians succeeding. But one way or the other, um, certainly the Russians aren't meeting the objectives that they want. Phil, thanks for talking to us again. We're glad you're, yeah, stay you're safe. safe. Yep. No, not my first rodeo. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> right, okay. Phil in there in Lviv, Ukraine. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer never charged criminally following sexual assault allegations. It hasn't stopped Major League Baseball from preventing him from taking the field. Hasn't pitched for the Dodgers since early last season. Now Major League Baseball suspended him for two full seasons without pay for what it deemed to be violations of the league's sex assault and domestic violence policies. Bauer says he will appeal. This comes after he sued his accuser in federal court. With us is Rachel Fisay, legal analyst, attorney, and managing partner at uh, Zweibach, Fisay, and Coleman. Rachel, thanks for being with us again. So I know that some people are going to be thinking and saying, why suspend somebody? How can you suspend somebody for two years when uh, no criminal charges have been brought against him? Apparently none will be. He hasn't been convicted of any crimes. So is this unusual? The answer to that question comes down to the standard for the suspension. And the MLB standard is not that whether he violated their domestic policy uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't have to find that he violated it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal standard. They just have to find that he violated it. And so they have a lower bar as it relates to this conduct than the district attorney would in charging him with a crime. And that's why you're seeing a crime, uh, there being no charge, but there being a suspension. So to them, it's more of a if there's smoke, there's fire kind of thing, and they can make that assessment right there, despite the prosecutor saying, we're not going to go forward with this because we don't see that we can. Well, my hunch is after the investigation, they found more than smoke. I think they know they're going to be under scrutiny for this decision. So while the district attorney decided not to prosecute because they did not feel in the end they could prove their case, beyond a reasonable doubt. I think that the MLB found with through their investigation that more likely than not, he did violate their policy. So as I understand it, uh, he may be, Bauer, that is, uh, one of the first or maybe the first to appeal this sort of suspension. If you were his attorney, what would your case be, do you think? I think you go back to exactly what you all are saying, which is, 
we uh, we were not charged with a crime. And also the woman uh, did not get the restraining order extended uh, in the civil court. So there is a lot of evidence, I think, that's been put forth through the legal process that perhaps this relationship was consensual and that he did not violate the policy. So he's going to be making those arguments to the independent arbitrator that, you know, for the MLB to appeal this suspension. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that second part and how important that might be for for him to point to saying, look, this judge said you don't need the protective order. So I'm clearly not a danger to this person. This judge went my way and and this arbitrator should, should, too. I actually think that argument is even more compelling than I wasn't charged with a crime because I wasn't charged with a crime. Again, that's a standard issue um, relating to beyond a reasonable doubt, which is certainly not something that the MLB has to be held to. However, a civil case is a more likely than not standard. And her not continuing the restraining order inside of the civil case is fairly compelling, I think, as far as his appeal goes. Is it also the case, Rachel, that, that you know, he has a contract, essentially, right, with, uh, uh, with the Dodgers? And, you know, when you have a contract, pretty much anything goes. If there are clauses in it, uh, you don't have to commit a crime. You don't have to do much of anything if it crosses one of the lines that are specified in the contract, right? Yeah, I agree with you. So I don't know if he will be successful on appeal, um, because they get to contract whatever they want to. And under, I think under his contract and under the agreement with the MLB, they are within their range to suspend him for this finding. Could it also be that they may see uh, a certain pattern here? There was the Washington Post report that there was a, another protective order filed on him a couple years ago by a, a woman in Ohio. And could they point to that and say, okay, now we've got a couple here, a couple of these instances at least? Right. They might see him as a ticking time bomb. Are we going to get another incident? The allegations are pretty gross when you really look at them. And so if there are two of these incidents, they probably don't want to be responsible for having another one. Um, and so, yes, I think all of that is probably coming into play. Rachel Fizet, legal analyst, attorney, managing partner, Zweibach, Fizet and Coleman. 30 years ago today, a dark moment in L.A.'s history as riots began following acquittals of four LAPD officers linked to the beating of Rodney King. It's a, a very fluid situation. Cars on fire. A liquor store fully uh, looted. Oh, there's another fire. Here we go. We look back at the riots to explore what progress has been made in the city when it comes to policing, race relations, building up South L.A. On this day, 30 years ago, L.A. Congresswoman Maxine Waters talked to KNX as the riots started. And I'm really pained at this moment as I listened on the line to the broadcast coming from my district, where obviously there is some... Um, some action going on in relationship to some uh, police cars, some bottles being thrown, some other things happening. It's very, very painful. Well, that was uh, Congresswoman Waters then. Here she is now. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So 30 years later, your thoughts? Well, thank you very much. I was reminiscing uh, basically about what happened uh, when I was so deeply involved in responding to 
um, the verdicts of those police officers who had beat Rodney King, thinking about the work I've been doing opposing Daryl Gates, who was a police chief, thinking about uh, the young people uh, who were being treated very badly uh, by the police being beaten, thinking about the chokehold uh, that Daryl Gates said was only common to black people because uh, of the way that their necks were constructed or something like that. I was thinking about all of those things and thinking about uh, whether or not what I did in resisting uh, what was being said by the media for the most part, that it was a bunch of criminals and uh, people out simply creating a riot and, um, you know, causing violence, et cetera, and how I decided that I was going to use that as a time for a real discussion about poverty and about racism, about police abuse, and about the fact that all of these people in so many communities, poor people, people of color, had been dropped off of America's agenda. What I was saying was not popular at the time, but I decided I was going to speak my truth to power. And that's what I was thinking all this morning. Okay, so now here we are. 30 years after the riots, what sort of progress uh, have we made uh, in this city? Let's let's just confine it to Los Angeles. What sort of progress has been made? Well, there have been some attempts to change the police commission to we've had several different police chiefs uh, in an effort to try and build uh, relationships between those communities that are suspicious of, afraid of the police. We've had some successes in small ways with some of the community policing that has been attempted. And of course, uh, in between all of that, we've had some nonprofits uh, who have been able to get some resources to deal with poverty. Uh, but the police relationships have never absolutely uh, been resolved. It is a continuing issue, not only in L.A., but across this country. As you know, you saw what happened with George Floyd uh, when the knee was held on his neck for nine minutes uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then all of the police killings of unarmed blacks, for the most part, have taken place. It's still a big issue, and we have a big deal here in the Congress of the United States where we're trying to get police reform. It is held up over on the Senate side uh, by two of the members of the Democratic Party uh, who have not uh, given it their support. So this issue of um, targeting of blacks and Latinos, young black males in particular, uh, just continues uh, to create the kind of distrust and the kind of anger in America uh, that we've got to continue to fight against. It's a problem. What about race relations between different groups? How do you see where we are? They've done all sorts of polling over the last week or so, and, and people are saying, you know what, we're still not there. We're not treating people fairly. You know, we, 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 we discovered something. During the pandemic, uh, when we put together the tremendous response here in the federal government, where we were given stipends, we were giving uh, support to the unemployed, uh, to small business, et cetera, that what we unveiled was how deep uh, the ostracism had gone, how deep uh, that, you know, people were still suspicious, uninvolved, 
felt that their governments didn't pay attention. Uh, and so we were not responding simply to the pandemic. We were dealing with the old problems of, um, you know, a lack of respect and support for the poorest and the most vulnerable of our society. I'm, I'm struck, uh, Congresswoman, by your assessment <clears throat> that in the 30 years since the riots, there's been some progress, but I take it you feel not not nearly enough. Uh, and again, I want to confine it uh, for the sake of this discussion to Los Angeles, if we can. Uh, why do you think that that's the case? Is it because organizations such as the LAPD, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but do you think that it's because they are fundamentally racist organizations? Do you think that the city of Los Angeles is fundamentally a racist city? It is not so much fundamentally racist. It is fundamentally a historic definition of what policing is. It is a lack of the kind of development and the training that it takes to help them to understand that it's not simply because you've got a gun and a badge that you can treat people badly, that you have the power, that everybody has to be afraid of you. It's about respect. It's about understanding. It's a new day and young people. And, you know, you can't just go around beating up on people because they wear their pants low and the caps backward uh, and be even more uh, you know, violent against them uh, than was, you know, perhaps in the past. So it is a matter of changing the historical way that policing has been done. And the fact that they had so much power that they felt that they could get away with doing whatever they wanted to do. And the way that you control people is you beat the hell out of them, you treat them badly, and you put fear in their hearts. That's what's got to stop. Do you think enough was done right after the riots? Is there a window after something so major like this happens where you can make the change and then that closes pretty quickly afterwards? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that the issue receives, you know, attention uh, for a short period of time and then it fades. I do not believe there is a continuation of development and training and getting rid of the old rules and the way that things were done and the uh, police that should be kicked out. And so all of that has to be dealt with. L.A. Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you. More in-depth to come. Chief Moore will be on with us a little later. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. More now on the 30-year anniversary of the start of the 1992 riots. L.A. always looking for ways to move forward, but has to reckon with the past before progress can be made. The past includes troubled race relations. There's concern among more than two-thirds of people polled by Loyola Marymount University that it is very somewhat likely that other riots and disturbances will occur in the next five years. With us is Brenda Stevenson, UCLA professor and one of the country's foremost experts in African-American history. She wrote The Contested Murder of Latasha Harlins. Latasha was the teenage girl killed by a convenience store owner back in 1991, which fueled tensions between the African-American and Korean communities. We're also joined by Dr. Madison Richardson, who treated Reginald Denny shortly after Denny was attacked at Florence and Normandy. Both of you, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's start, Brenda, 
with you, and and I want to keep our conversation, if we can, confined to Los Angeles. Uh, We just had on uh, before uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and we asked her about relations now between the African-American community in L.A. and the LAPD in particular, and how much, if at all, it has improved in the past 30 years. And she said that there had been some successes in small ways, but she also said that uh, it was still problematic when it came to community uh, policing. And I should point out that I believe that the Chief Moore, uh, LAPD Chief Moore, is listening to this, and we will have him on in our next segment to respond. But, Brenda, let me ask you to address what uh, Congresswoman Waters told us. Well, I think that um, Congresswoman Waters is correct. I think that the at least the perception by the public is that there have been some improvements, but other things have not Change and I think part of that has to do with, of course, the high profile profile um, incidents in occurring in Los Angeles and and nationally as well, but particularly in Los Angeles too, for the people who live in Southern California, and also I think people are much more aware, given what's happened nationally, of the impact of the court systems, not just the police, but also you know um, judges and juries and special prosecutors. Um, district attorneys, et cetera. So there's just a general sense that there is not a good relationship between people of color, Black people in particular, and policing forces in Los Angeles. When we look back 30 years later, what do you think we miss as part of the discussion sometimes? And and I ask you this because you wrote the book about Latasha, who her own family says, you know, sometimes she gets lost in all of this because people go straight to the acquittal of the officers for Rodney King. But what do we miss in the overall discussion when it's been 10, 20, 30 years? Well, I think we absolutely missed the case of Latasha Hollins, which was very important. But I think we also missed the kinds of um, problems, generally speaking, that people of color have in Southern California with regard to the economy, with regard to um, housing and educational facilities, et cetera. So there tends to be a tinderbox of sorts available almost at all times to contextualize these, these events that we call sparks or you know the initiations of these kinds of events in the streets. People are suffering from various inequalities. And so, you know, something very obvious, like what happens to uh, Rodney King or what happened to Latasha Harlins, it's just the, the topping on top of this kind of explosive cake. Okay, Brenda, stay with us. And let's bring into the discussion now, Dr. Richardson, who we mentioned before, treated Reginald Denny. That was shortly after Denny was Attacked. Doctor, thank you again for being with us. What do you make of this poll, the LMU poll that I cited at the start of this segment that said that uh, uh, more than two thirds of the people who responded thought it likely that there will be other riots and disturbances sometime within the next five years here? I don't know exactly that you can uh, predict anything from from the, those type polls, but I do think that uh, people can look at the conditions that exist now. Um, and I've had experience in uh, three riots, as it turns out. Uh, I was here in 1965, and then in 1968, uh, I was in medical school in Washington, D.C., was burned after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and then in 1992 for the uh, riots. Uh, it seems um, that the, this is a cycle, a cyclical type thing, and uh, there's a buildup of frustrations that happens in the communities and then whatever the spark, and it seems insignificant. And 
singular uh, fashion uh, by itself that it should uh, do that. But these frustrations build up over a period of time. And from 1965 to 1992, a number of years where these events were happening. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, that after, after uh, what we've seen um, nationally and even locally, that uh, sometimes these events are, are uh, subtle and uh, the frustrations are there. And so predictability is uh, hard to, to say, but when you look back at history, you can see that, um, you know, that many of the events that, uh, that sparked the, uh, the, the uh, two previously uh, partially exist now. But I do think that uh, some preventative things can be done. I, think, I hope we're getting smarter and we can look and see what some of these conditions are and address them uh, and, pre and prevent them from occurring. And uh, the tinderbox that we see that uh, can be diffused uh, uh, with, uh, I think, with foresight and effort on the part of the community. Can you take us back to that operating room? Have you taken yourself back today in your mind? And, and what is it like? I, I have a, uh, you know, I have a, a large file on this because it was a really intense time during, during my life, of course. Uh, when I was called uh, by the neurosurgeon to uh, come and uh, take care of him the night I was entertaining guests from uh, from India, and I had been over there um, as, uh, playing polo for a while, and uh, they were here. And uh, when I got the call, I left uh, Burbank, where I was at the time, and drove through the burning city and uh, got to uh, Daniel Friedman Hospital. Uh, I had an office next door there in those days. And... Um, before he was known as Reggie Denny, the poster child for the LA riots, he was a truck driver uh, when, when I was called to see him. And uh, when I came into the operating room and I reviewed the pictures again, I find I have private pictures that I've never shared with anyone. Uh, I looked at uh, his face and looked at the x-rays and uh, almost every bone in his frontal face was actually uh, destroyed along with, um, with uh, lacerations of his uh, his skin, et cetera. So there were extensive, extensive injuries there. Um, my training, uh, to a large extent, initially was uh, in uh, head and neck surgery, and I uh, had have done a lot of reconstructive work over my career, and I spent a couple of years of, uh, at a Hopkins affiliated hospital learning head and neck surgery, mostly related to cancer. But he had a very extensive injury, and uh, he put um, put the, the team of us um, through quite a bit in the six weeks ensuing his uh, his injury. Dr. Madison Richardson there treated Reginald Denny shortly after he was uh, attacked at Florence and Normandy. And then Brenda Stevenson, thank you for joining us, UCLA professor, one of the country's foremost experts in African-American history. The riots began following years of tension between the LAPD and the African-American community in the city. After the riots, serious reforms were implemented in the department, to try to fix some of the long-standing issues that led to mistrust of police. Flash forward 30 years later, has the LAPD really changed? With us now, Chief of the LA Police Department, Michael Moore, who was with the department before and during the riots. Uh, Chief, thanks for being here. So take me back 30 years for you. Well, good afternoon, Charles and Mike. Uh, thank you for having me on today. Uh, 30 years ago today, I was a sergeant uh, and was coming home uh, after the uh, burial of my father on his death. And I listened to KNX actually in the afternoon as the verdict was read. Uh, and then the uh, immediate hours afterwards and where the city uh, devolved into its, its the chaos. And uh, that next morning, about 4 a.m., I was at work and in, in the streets of Los Angeles and you know just saw the, the destruction and the, and the uh, 
just the loss of, of, of lives as well as so much turmoil and people's loss of their professions. It was just a tra- tragic and very dark, very dark time. So let's bring it closer now to, to, to where we are in 2022. Uh, the department, of course, went through a period when it, it had a consent decree with the Justice Department. It's gone through a, a number of, of chiefs, uh, yourself <laughs> included now. Uh, and you may have heard us talking in the last segment or perhaps even earlier when we had Congresswoman Maxine Waters on. And when we asked her uh, what she thought the relationship was like now in 2022, uh, between the African-American community in L.A. and LAPD. Her response was that there have been some successes in small ways, but she thought uh, clearly that a lot more needs to be done in terms of community policing. Do you agree? I agree in part. I think that much work has been done and much success has been achieved, uh, but uh, but much work still remains. We look back at, the, uh, at where we were 30 years ago. We were certainly a much less diverse workforce is a workforce made up more than 50 percent of, of caucasian male and today we're a workforce that is uh it's represented by men and women uh, of all uh, identities within los angeles uh, so it's a very much more uh, diverse workforce it's a much more educated and better trained i think we have some of the best trained and educated uh people within lapd uh, in law enforcement and certainly the profession i believe is, is better equipped today. The orientation, what I think is most critical in the last 30 years has changed, is the orientation of policing, rather than being towards communities that were in this pursuit of crime reduction, we recognize that the orientation has to be built on the critical importance of building trust. And that's trust in all of our communities, but particularly communities of color, which have had a history where law enforcement as an agent of the state has been discriminatory, has been hostile, has been divisive, uh, has been used as a, as a punisher, as an occupier, and that's not the Los Angeles, uh, that's not the LAPD of today. But yet, I also know that that with that history and then failures or shortfalls in in the work that we do, that we've got to stay committed to building trust each day and every engagement. We have to improve, uh, and I think we have our transparency of how we go about our work, uh, as well as our accountability. That when we mess up, that we that we have to own it. We have to fess up. We also have to uh, to be committed to evolving policing in a matter that builds trust. Our community safety partnership is our latest initiative that in 10 of the most disadvantaged and violent plagued communities of Los Angeles that have had an underlying historic distrust of the police by assigning especially trained officers that work in those communities for a period of five years, that we see that the cohesion of that, work, of that community, their reliance and partnerships with the department, their trust of policing improves while crime is reduced and the number of, of, uh, of use of forces as well as the number of arrests uh, are reduced. And so we do believe that we have the, the formula, if you will, for uh, making uh, Los Angeles a safer place, for addressing crime and disorder while building trust, that those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I hold for uh, even as we exit the darkest uh, pandemic in our in our lifetime, I hold uh, optimism for the future. You can have the formulas and you can put these programs in place. Are you sure that everyone is following the programs? Because there are people talking at their radios right now saying, no, no, no. The problem still is that the police see themselves as, as uh, warriors. We've heard this time and time again. They're They're out there fighting crime and going after people instead of being protectors. And as long as you don't switch those two, then people are never going to trust you. Well, I, I don't, I don't dismiss uh, at all the fact that uh, we have uh, in individual instances, or, or perhaps indivi- and even individuals, 
that uh, look themselves as some type of warrior or protector in the fact that they're going to be, uh, you know, this, this punisher, if you will, or they're going to occupy a, a, a community or, and, and, and look at a community through a lens uh, that is that's biased, unfair, and certainly uh, demean, uh, lacks respect for the individual uh, individuality of everyone that they come in contact with. Our effort is, first of all, is to hire uh, intelligently, to make sure that the people that are well-qualified don't come to work with those ty- this profession with those types of mindsets. And then in their work in this profession is that the corrosive effect of seeing sometimes the most violent and some of the most inhumane uh, acts and circumstances that anyone should should never have to see, that that doesn't tarnish them or, or harden their heart, that they continue to work with, with the bravery that the men and women of LAPD do each day, but also a bravery of their spirit that they're here to, they're here to protect, but they're here to serve. And in that service, that means serving with a heart of empathy, uh, with identity, uh, identifying that, that communities that are, that are most often violent plagued, uh, they need us, but they need us to be there with, uh, with a heart of service and a heart of looking out for individuals, as while also, in the candor, identifying individuals that are preying upon those very communities and, and taking lives and, and, and taking away livelihoods of individuals. So it's a difficult job. I, uh, I, I uh, reflect on President Biden uh, and his remarks uh, last October during uh, police week uh, that was, had been modified because of the impact of the pandemic on, on all of us. And he said there's no harder job in America than being a police officer. I also think, and why I believe that's true, I also believe there's no greater job of, of, that offers the opportunity for rewarding, a rewarding career, a rewarding profession, and one that can build trust in our communities. We're better today than we were 30 years ago, but I know that uh, each day we've got to continue to build trust, deepen it, uh, own, own our mistakes of the past, but remain committed going forward uh, to, to winning over the hearts of, of, of a community that at times can be very distrustful of us. Chief Moore, thanks for talking to us. LAPD Chief Michael Moore. That's in-depth for the week. We will be back Monday.